Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. This is the second interview of five in the series of The Vernacular Voices of the Storyteller. I met with five amazing storytellers to find out what they thought about breaking down barriers between people through stories and food. In these fractured times, I wanted to look at how stories from different voices can overcome the distance between people and highlight our shared experiences, and I hope the answers from these storytellers will help. This interview is with Claire Murphy, and if you haven't heard of her before, you'll definitely want to hear more after this. I'd like to introduce you to my guest today. Claire Murphy has been a storyteller for 14 years. She's performed in more than 20 countries, telling stories for all kinds of audiences. And her international stages include the National Theatre in London, National Storytelling Festival in Tennessee, in America, and Boca de Coy, Brazil. Claire is currently the storyteller in residence at the NHS Southwest Leadership Academy. Welcome, Claire. Oh, very nice to be here. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Um, I think we'll sort of go straight in with some questions. but I think my first one is quite, it's quite a big question, really. But is it really, in what ways do you think stories are universal? Oh, what a great question to start with. Stories are universal because they contain this currency of human existence. And no matter where you go, no matter what stories you read, wherever they're from, could be from a year ago, could be from 10,000 years ago, the same things are happening. It's about conflict, it's about resolution, it's about love, it's about journeys, it's about facing darkness, it's about finding light. And no matter where I, I've read stories from all over and they all contain the same human endeavors. And so that's why they act as this bridge between all cultures, because yes, there are, there are stories that are indigenous to certain places and certain peoples, but when you look at what's happening in the stories, I'm sure it's the same thing all over. Thank you. Um, I think another thing, although as you said, stories are universal, but I also think that it's quite important that we hear different voices telling stories. Is that something you'd agree with and and, and why? Absolutely. We're living in a time now with globalisation where everything is available and we can have absolutely everything. And that's really useful in lots of ways. There's a danger with the way things become homogenous. So we think that you know, there's sort of one story that fits all. But actually, if you listen to stories of the Sami people told by the Sami people from northern Norway versus stories from, you know, I don't know, the you know, Papua New Guinea, those stories are going to be very different because they're going to be rooted in the place they come from. And so it's important to celebrate the different voices that are telling stories, even though what's in the stories ends up being the same stuff. The, the differences between people is worth celebrating, I think. Thank you. I, I definitely agree. Um, and I think, as you said, stories are universal, and maybe in a way that answers this question, but why do you think stories help us break down barriers? So stories contain, there's a couple of things. There's a, there's, there's a few different ways to answer that question. The first one is what happens to the listener. So when we're listening to a story, you and I know this because we listen to lots of stories. But for those of your listeners who, who haven't heard a lot of stories or think stories are for kids, there's an incredible neurochemical reaction that happens when we listen to a story. Now, the way I've witnessed it in my audience is they come up to me and they say, oh, I haven't felt like that since I was five. And that was, that's because that's the last time someone told them a story. But what's actually happening is you're turning on the cinema of the mind. And when you turn on the cinema of the mind, 
the audience member sees the entire story play out in their mind's eye. So they see it within the limits of their imaginations. So they're only going to be scared up until the point that they can handle, which is where, you know, listening to a story versus watching a movie is really, really different because you are controlling it, right? So it becomes this submersive, co-creative, artistic experience. It also activates your empathy. So neuroscientists have tracked this. There are four major chemicals that are released in the brain of the listener when they're listening to a story. So it's dopamine, serotonin, cortisol, and oxytocin. And oxytocin is the empathy generator. I only started looking into neuroscience about five years ago. I was so fascinated because of course, I know what's happening because I see the response afterwards. People are filled with this feeling of love and compassion and connectivity. And that is because of the oxytocin. So empathy is what makes us walk in the shoes of another. So if I said to you, you know, uh, losing a limb is very difficult. People who've lost a limb have a lot that they struggle with. Uh, There are serious access issues around England when you lose a limb, right? Those Those are three facts. But I work with a group called the Limbless Veterans, Blasma, the Limbless Veterans, and they tell the story of what it means to live with, you know, one limb or two limbs or three limbs. And when they tell that story and they tell it in schools all around the country, they generate empathy. So people who've never suffered that kind of a loss can suddenly imagine what it's like to have to navigate a supermarket when you're when you're on two prosthetic legs or navigate a swimming pool. Right. And when you start to when you have to walk through that experience or roll through that experience, if you're trying to imagine being in a wheelchair, your brain is so brilliant that you play out the whole thing. So even though you've never experienced it, your brain generates the experiences if you have. That is the major way in which stories break down barriers because we have to live inside the shoes of another. The other thing that starts to happen as you hear stories from other people, so we're seeing this in Frontline Medical at the moment and other other teams like that, is it decreases your feeling of isolation. So we see this with mental health stuff all the time. If someone talks about depression, someone else says, oh, it's not just me, right? So there's the feeling that happens in the brain, but then there's the realization that happens that it's not just me, I'm not alone. Therefore, that breaks down the barrier of someone wanting to stay isolated. And we see this all the time at storytelling events. People sit down, they have a collective experience and they go through the cinema of the mind together and they automat- there's automatically more friendliness in the room and more hospitality because people feel they've gone through a collective experience. So that's just the tip of the iceberg of how it does it. But yeah, that gives you a glimpse anyway. No, that, that's absolutely fascinating. I knew a little bit of that, but, but definitely not all of it. The world is not a welcoming place with disability, um, I think. Yeah, and the world is is not a welcoming place if you're black. And the world no. is not a welcoming place if you're gay in some countries. Yeah. And so until we amplify those stories, yeah. you know, th- that's going to that's gonna be what breaks down the barriers. And we worry about how to address those things. We worry about how to address race. We worry about how to address the LGBTQT issues because we've lived in a homogenized world that says the kind of white male, you know, able-bodied, which isn't even a great way to describe that, is the norm and everything else is other. So, you know, your idea in your podcast of breaking down barriers, it's all around the idea that that isn't the norm. That's one of a spectrum of existences. And we're just at this really fascinating point in, in Western civilization where we're waking up to all of that. We're, we're breaking all of that down and it's painful and it's difficult, but it's up to us to keep 
yeah. opening all the doors and keep asking the questions, keep amplifying the voices, not the other voices, the voices, right? Yeah. yeah. Because we need everybody if we're going to the next, whatever yes. the next phase is for us. Yeah, definitely. I think that, that's, that's the truth. My next one really is perhaps slightly out of order, but I, I think it's important. And I think it's, what do you think stories tell us about place? What do stories tell us about place? Yeah. Oh my God. That's an enormous question, Rachel. What it's do you do for me? <laughs> Have I had enough coffee? Let's see. No, you haven't had enough coffee. So it's, it's fascinating. So there are some stories that are tied to place and some stories that are not tied to place. I'll start with the stories that are not tied to place. There are stories that you'll find in every culture. So there are stories that are rooted in, say, the trickster, right? And you'll find it a version of trickster in most cultures, a version of the fool. And what happens in the story, the dressing of the story is slightly different, but the story remains the same. There is somebody, I mean, in Norse mythology, the most, you know, the most famous trickster at the moment is Loki, but there are so many versions of him. And his job is to change things, is to disrupt, right? There are folk tales that travel all over the world and they've just been, they've been gathered and they've been passed on and they've been relocated. Myths are tied to place, much more so than folk tales. So myths are a lot older. Folklore goes back, you know, it might go back a thousand years. You might, you might get a folk tale that's, that's 1500 years old, maybe. But myths are going 2000 to 5000 to 10,000. And then you go to Aboriginal myths from Australia, Tasmania, that kind of area, New Zealand, and you're, you're looking at 60,000 years, right? And myths lie in relationship with landscape. They lie on the land. So they're tied to the land. They're tied to how the land was made. So they're very much rooted in place. So I'd say that's the short answer for your, what would be a marathon, like 12 hour, you could get yeah. six storytellers around a table and that would be like the whole weekend. I know, but if I could record it, how much podcasting free time would I have after? <laughs> I love it. Um, I, this question, I'll give you a little bit of context, but I've recently read a, a really excellent article um, um, on the point of view of, of, of asylum seekers coming to this country um, and then have, sharing their story, which you, you, happens. And there are lots of good reasons why that happens. But the article was really interesting because it was about how that has become very performative. Mm. And that's quite a difficult position because the story is so important. It's that part of that person's voice. It's part of their experience. Mm -hmm. But should they be expected to share that story every time in order for them to make, to feel part of where we are, to, to feel that should, should happen. Mm. And so this is where that question's coming from. It's a question of basically storytelling versus almost personal narrative. Mm -hmm. So my question is that what does storytelling achieve that sharing of a personal narrative doesn't? So when you, just to go back to the, the people seeking asylum, yeah. are you talking about telling the traumatic story of yeah. their journey fleeing their yeah. country? Yeah. Right. So I'm going to start with that because yeah. that's really important. I, I really dislike the word refugee and I really dislike the word asylum seeker because unfortunately that puts them in a very small box yes. that we've defined that yeah. it completely robs them of their three-dimensional humanity. Yeah. So, So the people who are who are looking for a new home yeah. are asked that story by every authority that they come across. 
So every police checkpoint, every passport control, that's the story they have to tell. And I don't think that that's the most... It's fine if they want to tell it, but it should only come from a position where it's their agency, they get to tell it. I did a project years ago out in the west of Ireland working with a group of, you know, new citizens to Ireland. And we did a storytelling show, but they told traditional material. They told folklore from their country. Everyone told a single story from their country. And it was magic because folklore is what we have in common. So instead of there's that traumatic story, which, as you say, it becomes performative of the personal trauma. And there's real there's real issues there, isn't there, around why are we making them perform that trauma? What is who who is that serving? So to go to your question around storytelling versus personal narrative, I mean, this is a fascinating question because in some countries, personal narrative is the main form of storytelling, right? For example, in America, United States, right? Because they have a, there's many reasons for that, but they have a focus on the individual. And so you've got these wonderful podcasts like The Moth and all of that, where you've got true stories under five minutes and people are telling stories under a theme and that's brilliant. And it gives a lot of people, empowers a lot of people to find meaning. Because when you tell stories from your life and from your work, it helps you make meaning. That's what stories do. So when you are able to put a life experience into a section that has a beginning, middle and end, and you can see what happened, it allows you to, to gain wisdom from experience. Storytelling, when you're using traditional material, folklore, mythology, legend, saga, whatever your traditional material is, it's outside of the personal experience that sounds very obvious but i think it's really important to, to like my friend bill harley says in the states become masters of the obvious so what folklore and myth myth especially allow us to do is occupy a larger space in the communal domain so that creates a different kind of emotional journeying there's a great writer karen armstrong i'm always quoting her she talks about the need humans have to go through catharsis and catharsis while listening to your mythology, mythology that you already know, but you listen to it regularly, like ritual, like religion, allows a certain catharsis that personal narrative has its own kind of catharsis, but it's slightly different. I think there's a place for both. I think both are really needed and the context is different. For me personally, I love watching one person shows. I love watching personal narrative you know, anything that's well, well crafted is, is a joy, but I get something out of myth that I can't find anywhere else. And I think anyone out there who hasn't listened to really good, deep, powerful myth should treat themselves to that experience sometime and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that uh, if you've never had that experience, don't think until you have, you realize what it, yeah. I used to work in a theater and we had, um, Oh, I can't remember who came now. It's only a small theatre, and they came and they did the show, and it was it was based on um, African myth, and it was just this astonishing, just but with music, and and it was just when you came out, I I was a front of house person, so I'm a front of house manager. You don't get carried away by theatre as much as you like to, because you're waiting for the things that can go wrong around it. So you very rarely, no matter how good the piece is, lose yourself in a piece, because mm. when you're working, because you're working and. You might be enjoying it, but you're not quite there. And it's one of the few pieces that just took me. And it could have been burning around us. <laughs> and I wouldn't have, because I was so involved in the story and the piece and the, and just coming out. And I, I felt like I was one of the audience coming out, not like I was, yeah. It's just, it's amazing how, how it can take you. 
Well, that's that's the greatest compliment you can give. I remember a technician in Galway. I was doing a show there, and he came up to me afterwards, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, "I listened to the whole thing." <laughs> And I really get anyone who works in theatre, like you see, you've seen it all. So you are just naturally resistant because you're, you're having to work. And, and if, if something can grab you and pull you in, that, yeah. that is a hell of a compliment. We've sort of talked about how sharing stories, um, people realise they have sort of shared experiences and, and, and narratives and, and it breaks down barriers in the way of, of empathy. I think, and I, I, I think everyone I've ever sort of spoken to about this thinks that sharing food helps strengthen bonds and break down some sort of barriers between people because actually it's about differences almost with foods because people are curious, but actually sitting together and eating mm. just has that. I worked with um, learning mentors a few years ago. They all worked with children who had newly come to this country on their own, but they had all come to this country themselves from various different places, but had been years before various different wars. And we used to have a sit down every month where it was a bring your own dish. I mean, that could be like cakes from the supermarket, but actually sitting down and we shared so much over that food that we wouldn't have done just because we were colleagues because it actually pushed work out of the way a bit, mm. but still gave us something to talk about because that can be very different, I think, with work colleagues because we have that. But when you've got, we sit around food, you get a different thing. Absolutely. Um, so as I say, do you think that sharing food does sort of strengthen bonds between people and, and does it lead to sharing stories and experiences? And Absolutely. The, the table and the plate of food, breaking bread with somebody is one of the most powerful ways to build community. I'm thinking of a story my brother told me and I can't remember, I think it was George Mitchell. So when they were trying to get the Good Friday Agreement up and running 30 years ago, right? There's a senator in America who got involved in the peace process. His name was George Mitchell. And he, he's respected and revered in Ireland for everything he did. It was quite a tense time and they needed to get everybody agreeing. Well, they secretly flew everyone to London. They couldn't, they could not let that out, right? That they'd flown a bunch of people from Northern Ireland to London to have these talks. So it was all very hush hush, very tense, very long days. He had a rule. His rule was no matter what, every night, everyone had to sit down at the table. Everyone had to eat together and you were not allowed to talk about politics. And what do you think happened? As the food came out, they started talking about their children. They started talking about sport. They started talking about all the things we have in common. And of course, the connections then get made. You see the other person as a person, not as your enemy. I, I think, I just think food is so powerful. And the other thing is, is that to tie in with that is that we're living in these extraordinary times when people have been locked in their houses and things like that. But we're also living in times where we're on screens a lot. And food, that time when we sit down together, and not all families are able to do this, but it can be that one time of the day when conversation happens. And so I think it it's vital. I think it's absolutely vital as a, as a levelling ground. The best projects I've been involved in over the last 16 years, the best festivals, the best everything, have been places that insisted everyone eat together. And when you say everyone, it's everyone. It's not that the managers are in one room and the participants are in the other. It's a leveling field. And I just, I think anyone who underestimates that just just might've forgotten a little bit of what it means to be human. 
Thank you. I, I agree so much with it. I think it's just, I mean, I, for, for, just from my experience from the, from the pandemic. It makes you, I mean, just, I mean, eating is a pleasure in life, but eating yeah. alone is hard. Yeah. Eating is a greater pleasure if you're eating and talking. Yeah. It, it makes you slow down and appreciate the food. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think I'm probably a little unusual. I love food, but I like to, I like to match my food to my entertainment or my drinks and things. So if I'm especially at the moment when you sort of feel that you like some sense of occasion without going out, so it's like I will have if I'm going to watch like a, a big trashy movie, then I want homemade pizza and, and beer because that's like the whole. If I'm going to watch something that's a performance, that's a or a storytelling thing, and then I'll turn all the lights off and have something that's a bit more, you know, and and have drinks that feel like a bit more, you know, and and then because for me that's making an occasion when you can't make the occasion yeah. any any other way. We should start running storytelling events because so many storytellers I know have done similar things where they've incorporated food or cooking or tea ceremony. Yeah. I've got, I know a storyteller in Spain who works a lot with bodegas and he runs wine tastings. He tells stories about wine in the cellar with the different taste. And it's, you know, everything is married together. So yeah, you should probably start running storytelling events soon. <laughs> with all the cooking involved. Um, there's a fantastic, um, she's an author. She wrote the Little Library Cookbook and the Something Else Cookbook. She's done a Christmas one as well, where she takes food from her favorite books and things and she's made them but she did with a brand they have occasion they did pop-ups in london in downstairs of a bookshop and they did the food of a story of a book and then they made the dinner about and i just thought what an amazing i mean yeah like they did danny the champion of the world i love that it's one of the i know but that's so yeah, food and obviously I do a podcast about stories and food and food history because I find that fascinating as well. It's just another story, isn't it? But it's uh, I like I love reading old cookbooks and reading when you're reading something that someone's made in 1665, and I don't mean that necessarily. Although those are fascinating, the sort of big and obviously the older you go back, the more that's more the only evidence that's available. But when you start to get down to the part where it's someone's housekeeper who's making food. So they're a bit more, they're not necessarily the big sort of rich dinners. And you think, do you know what? My nan could have made that. It's not that different. And how do, you know, and it's just that connection between us as humans that I feel that, much as I love history, doesn't always make us feel. But if you think of somebody in a kitchen making something and you're in a kitchen making something, it just builds that connection. And so I find it fascinating. Yeah, we're tied to, we're, yeah, we're tied to our ancestors, but we live in, in these times, we live in this world that seems to disconnect us more quickly from things. So anything that reconnects us to our ancestral lines is going to yeah. make us feel more like we belong and less yeah. isolated. Yeah. I think my last question, and this can be as, as serious or amusing as, as, as you like. I mean, I, 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 it'll depend on your memory. Do you have something like that? I do. I do. I mean, I'll tell you the first one that comes to mind. I'm sure I've got more than one. So my mother is American. Uh, white American and moved to Ireland in 1970 and believe it or not a white American woman in 1970s Ireland was as foreign as it got in the village that I lived in on the outskirts of Dublin and we had all kinds of strange food that other people did not eat so peanut butter and jam sandwiches was normal in my house and everyone just thought I was a freak because they didn't know what that was even pasta was quite unusual in the 1970s in Ireland. Pasta with, you know, bolognese. So we were always slightly odd for the food that we ate. But there was one day 
every year that my mother was celebrated for her genius. And that was Halloween. Because on Halloween in Ireland, what you'd do, similar to England, is you'd go around. Well, we, we had a terrible, a terrible thing we said. We'd say any apples or nuts or cigarette butts. It rhymed. So we said it. We didn't do that American trick or treat thing, but you went around and you got your, you know, you got your, your chocolate or your apples or whatever. Two days before Halloween, my mother would start and the kitchen would smell of sugar. Right. And she had to start early because she always burned the first batch. So what she was doing was she was making homemade caramel. And she would make it and she'd burn the first batch and then she'd remember all the things because she hadn't made it in a year. And then she'd make it again and she'd do all the popcorn and then she would roll the popcorn in the caramel and she would make caramel popcorn balls, which were as large. You can see how large they were, but for your listeners, as two fists put together, they were enormous to children. It was amazing. And because we were, you know, we didn't have a lot grow, like we wouldn't have had a lot. She, She could just make a certain number. That's what she could afford to do. She had four kids, so she didn't have a lot of time either. So she would make a certain number. And then when the kids started calling on Halloween, she'd only give everybody one because that's, you know, there were only whatever. She only had 40 of them. She wanted to try and get to as many kids as possible. Well, they were so tasty, Rachel, that the kids would sneak off down the end around the corner from our house, switch masks and come back to try and get another one. So her whole job on Halloween was to try and figure out which kid she'd already (laughs) given a popcorn ball to. And then they would go off and they would slowly and it would take a while to eat your way through one as your teeth were rotting in your head. But it was it made her an absolute superstar for that day every year. That's amazing. So wonderful. Thank you for sharing that with me. I really appreciate it. It's um, the peanut butter and jelly things. My, my mum has, she's not American, um, but she spent some time in the States and before I was born and um, I had peanut butter and jelly and it was completely normal to me and people just didn't. And this was the seventies. This was the seventies in the West Midlands. You know, it's not, and I know people say, but it's not that dissimilar to a small village in Ireland. This is seventies. Same. Yeah. That is, you may as well be eating moon dust, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it might be well, but thank you. Oh, that's what a wonderful memory. Thank you very much. Um, I think that's everything I have to say. And thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, and it's been wonderful. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you'd like to hear more about Claire, you can find her at her website, which is clairemurphy.org, or she's on at Story Claire on Twitter and Instagram. Claire has a new show, The Nine Muses of Queen's Crescent, premiering on November the 4th, 2021, in Bristol and following on in Dorset. There'll be links to that in the show notes. I hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode. If you haven't heard the interview that I did with Amy Douglas that was broadcast last week, you can go to wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you want to hear more of these, you can subscribe to the podcast. There'll be three new bonus episodes after this one, which, if you subscribe, will appear in wherever you get your podcasts every week on a Tuesday. Last week was also Anne brand new birthday episode for the new season so if you'd like to listen to that which has a story and some history about the story and some history about the food and a recipe contained in it you can also find that as i said wherever you get your podcasts and that's the end of this episode thanks again for listening to folklore food and fairy tales <laughs>